0: Uxbridge returns. One evening, an unexpected visitor came to Quentin's office. He was a thin, stoop-shouldered man who looked as if he had stolen his suit from a rather random set of clotheslines. "'I'm sorry,' said Quentin, rising, "'but I'm no longer taking appointments today. If you speak to my secretary, she will tell you when—' The man sat down and smiled. "'in a manner which awakened all of Quentin's newly-developing political instincts. "'Hello, Quentin,' said the man, "'and Quentin suddenly had a deep, spinal memory of blood. "'Someone from the war.' "'I'm sure we've met,' he said, "'but you really must telephone for an appointment.' "'The man's smile widened, and he leaned forward. "'Grenades!' Quentin's heart seemed to widen in his chest. Pardon me? Grenades, repeated the man sitting back. That were the last time we met. Over boxes. Overnight. Quentin sat down making sure not to collapse into his chair. Damn me, why did I make myself so prominent? I'm not sure I remember, he said. "'touching the knot of his tie, wanting to loosen it, "'but afraid of showing any nervousness. "'One night, you and me, we put grenades into sausages "'and sausages into grenades, and do you know what became of it?' "'Quentin's eyes were frozen slightly wide. "'His mind flashed here and there. "'I have to get him out of here. What if he blabs? "'It's just a story. Why is he here? "'Can I give him something without compromising myself?' Does this man know about politics? I could just make anything up. It was a bad night, that night, said Uxbridge. Not the night of the boxes, but the next night. The crowds were dug in, and since we had no grenades to blow them out, nor sausages to lure them out, it were a bloody night. We met while I was a supply sergeant. The man nodded, oh yeah. And to save you... Time and words. I have a sheet of paper which says that you signed for them grenades and knew that they were grenades. And another which says that you signed for them sausages and knew that they were sausages. Quentin stood up almost shooting to his feet. Perhaps you could tell me what this is all about, but I have no time today. Put it in writing. Come back another time. I'll be quick then. We both have our businesses. I want a job, Quentin." "'Then you must leave a CV with, with Dawson, and—' "'We both know. Men like me have no CVs. "'I want a job where I can put my feet up. "'Then we shall really have to speak, if I can come up with something for you that—' "'Quentin moved around his desk and opened the door leading to the corridor. "'I am wanted in the house, so I must ask for you to come back.' "'I'll wait,' said Uxbridge. "'That is quite impossible. My files—' Uxbridge got up slowly, then turned and cocked his head. Aye, then. Paperwork is important. Tomorrow. A job by tomorrow. He then shuffled past Quentin and wandered up the corridor. Quentin watched him go, then hurried back to his desk and pulled out a yellow pad of paper. Rapidly, he wrote, Pluses. Get him barred from the building. Minuses. His next step, if any, would be unknown. Pluses. Stall him. Minuses. Same as above. Pluses. Reject his story. Minuses. Suspicion grows. He might have paperwork. Pluses. Accept his story. Come clean. Minuses. Criminal action. Military court. Jail. Pluses. Get him a job. Minuses. More blackmail. Pluses. Have him killed. Minus is only joking. And underneath he wrote, What about Ruth? If Ruth ever found out that Quentin had, even with the best of intentions, been responsible for the death of any soldiers, as if I pulled the German triggers, then he would immediately be transfigured from caring husband to callous murderer of fine men like my father and brothers. There is no way that her newfound sanity and resilience would survive a blow of this magnitude. No, Ruth would fall apart on even the suspicion that Quentin had done anything like deny needed weapons to soldiers in a charge. And Reginald, his son's career, the job he's thinking about at the Foreign Office, well, that would all be gone. And and all that I have done over the last year here in this office, all the parasites I have waved away, they would all be back doubly enraged, doubly self-righteous. The politician who denied me was a, a... But Quentin could not even ascribe the words to the mental voice of a contemplated enemy. A man trying to do right in an impossible situation. A man who saved more lives than he lost. A surgeon who hiccuped at the wrong moment. A drop of sweat fell into Quentin's right eye, and he shuddered and rubbed it. There are no pluses to fighting this one. Many people who will now judge me were never there, never at war. I will be judged by matrons and civil servants and aristocrats and... and by Ruth and Reginald. I could resign. The thought hit him hard, but then vanished, almost... At once, Uxbridge would not be waved off by that. He found him because of his political visibility. He would not be so hard to find again. He would want money, then. But, but why wait until now? So if I find him a job... Quentin was quite aware of how to create jobs in the abstract, awarding fat contracts, subsidies, trade protections, but a job in the present, here and now? A job which could be handed over like a card? Quentin had no idea. But perhaps I could just ask for a friend. A friend unrelated to my political life. But would anyone assume that an obviously unproductive favor from an MP would be anything other than a political favor? Well, I might perhaps approach an old friend and say that I have to get this man a job for for reasons unspecified. Oh, I wish I had some old seedy friends grimy a finger and handy with a pocket knife. Oh, don't be stupid. He sat for some hours in his darkening office and then left around eight o'clock. A few minutes after he left, he tore back into his office and set fire to his plus and minus piece of paper, holding it with his fingertips as it burned over the ashtray. Then... Remembering some detective novel trick, he tore off the next few yellow sheets and burned them as well, so they could not be shaded over, back into visibility. Tom goes to the Reichstag. Tom was out for only a few minutes. Klaus revived him by placing shards of ice against his upper lip. Tom first saw a cracked ceiling, written on it, with a thick brush. Seemingly long ago was a German phrase which, and it took him almost a minute to translate it, read, If you can read this, you've drunk too much. He smiled. Tom? asked Klaus. Anxiously, Tom turned his head. Klaus's perfect face came into view, his blonde hair hung down. His blue eyes were soft, worried. Can you get up? We should go. The police are coming. I thought, Tom said thickly, that you said the police didn't come. Not the police police, that's true. It'll be either the police who like the Nazis or the police who like the communists. We don't want to be here either way. Where is the bartender? He's tending some of the wounded lefties. He said to say, sorry, he didn't know you were a Tommy. Tom smiled again, and they both realized that the German slang for English was also his childhood nickname. He levered himself up on his elbows. I think I'm all right to leave. I assume we don't have to worry about the bill. I left some money on the bar, said Klaus, helping him up. I don't know who'll take it, but that's not our worry. Tom looked at the bar. Chairs and tables were cast about, all intact. He remembered as a teenager wondering why, in Western movies, chairs broke easily over the heads of the bad blokes. How could they support their weight, then? Some of the people lying about, though, had not fared as well as the furniture. Blood was being coughed up. A man tried to get up, clutching a table, then collapsed with a cry, his leg, at a terribly wrong angle. The first fascist lay against the table Klaus and Tom had been sitting at, an upside-down pitcher of beer sitting on his head. The inside of the foamy glass was spattered with red. His chest heaved, his hands twitched. He cried out that there was something wrong with his eyes. Back," muttered Tom, staggering over. "'Half his own face seemed to have gone dead. "'Even opening his right eye caused his cheekbone to throb. "'He lifted the pitcher off the man's head. "'The man stared stupidly around, then looked up at Tom. "'His eyes narrowed in hatred. "'Tom could see his cheeks working, gathering spittle. "'The man took a deep breath. "'You stupid bastards,' said Tom. "'Almost gently, he put the pitcher back on the man's head.' The man spat anyway, and just as Tom turned away, he saw the spittle sliding down the foamy inside of the glass onto the man's wet, black shirt. "'Come on, Klaus,' he said, gesturing. "'I don't know where my friends are.' "'I don't know either,' said Tom, touching his numb cheek. "'But I'm going.' Klaus paused for a moment. "'All right, me too.' Outside, the night was cold. Tom liked the chill. It took the edge off the prickly numbness of his face. Do I have a shiner? A what? A a black eye. You will. And a mark. He had a ring. Where to? Do you want to go anywhere? Do I need to see a doctor? I don't think so. All right, then. Back to the hotel. Tom felt annoyed all of a sudden. I am your guest. Why am I making all the decisions? Then another thought followed right away. So, Gunther, is this what you wanted me to see? They walked in silence. Black, figures scurried from doorway to doorway. Berlin seemed like a city hung under dangerous moonlight. Graffiti was everywhere. Occasionally young men ran around a corner shouting lustily. Once they held burning torches in their fists and Tom thought of the novel Frankenstein. All right, grimaced Tom finally, his face really beginning to throb. What the fuck is going on in this goddamn city? You never used to swear, said Klaus, slightly defensively. You don't want to tell me? Suddenly Klaus seemed very sad. He took a deep, shuddering breath. Tom recalled that Klaus was not a big man, and this was a dangerous time to be small. Well, the whole thing is sort of grinding to a halt. What, the Republic? This democratic ideal. Everyone in charge says we don't care about ideology. We just want to do what works. But... Klaus's voice broke a little. But... We don't... Think anymore. At least not many people do, except the old. We don't believe that you can run a society without ideals. I mean, how can something work if it's not right? Not right like proper, but right like moral. So the whole thing is unraveling. Tom's voice was grave. Is it because of the depression? Yes and no. I know you hate the dialectic, Tom, but it is yes or no. It might be the catalyst, but it's not enough. If it was just the Depression, then all countries would be like this. England isn't, right? We saw that the day of the riot in the street. That wouldn't even be noticed here. Klaus's voice suddenly became like a blade of cold steel. We no longer care to converse with our elders. They have sold our futures for the sake of their petty palaces. They tell us about the good, and we are good children. We are Germans— they tell us about the good and we try to do the good. But do you know what we have noticed? We have noticed on closer examination that what they said to us was the good is only good for them. And we are humiliated that we fell for such silly lies. The depression is a crisis and the crisis reveals the truth. And the truth is that our leaders only lead for themselves and their cronies. They take from us and give to their own kind. They do not care for us. They do not care for the hungry, the idle, sick, weary, and suicidal. They say they do. But everything they try only makes things worse. So wouldn't you say that they should be honest with us? Shouldn't they sit down with the young and say, we are out of answers, take our power, you will have to fend for yourselves, best of luck? No. They do nothing of the sort. They are out of answers but will not step aside. They are for their interest alone. So we have no choice but to cast them aside. "'And what is your view of what should replace them?' asked Tom quietly. "'They passed a street flickering with yellow light and distorted shadows. "'A car had been overturned. A pond of petrol was on fire. "'A group of youths was running through it, whooping and encouraging each other. "'One of them wore a torn and flopping top hat. "'I don't know,' laughed Klaus gaily. "'I am an academic, remember?' His voice hardened again. But I do know this. It will have nothing to do with what we have known as the West. What is culled from the Enlightenment, either of the English or French varieties. But neither will it be something from the East, not Communism, as it is currently practiced. The Germans dislike anything Slavic. Marx was German. Yes, but he was a Jew. And so and so his solutions cannot be specifically German, historically German, as far as a racial solution goes. We are tired of picking up the leftovers of other cultures' thoughts. We wish to create something of our own, something unique, radical. England has had her time of destiny. The 19th century was the British century. France, too, had the 18th century. We Germans have never had our century, our time of destiny. Surely the end of all, "'This, of all we see around us,' Klaus gestured at the running men the distant flames, "'has something to do with Germany throwing off, something which is not our own, "'something foreign and suffocating. "'It will be our time now!' "'His fists were hard, his voice was thick with exultation. "'Klaus,' said Tom, "'Klaus, I don't think I shall be able to remain here.' "'Klaus blinked. "'Why are you not?' Curious how this shall turn out? Tom closed his eyes for a moment. He touched his chest. I think that in my heart I have a good idea. You think German militarism has returned, said Klaus, his voice scornful all of a sudden. You think that England has the right to an empire, France has the right, America, but not Germany. England can impose her will everywhere, but Germany must be chained up in the cellar, gnawing on whatever food the Allies see fit to throw her. Klaus! shouted Tom. Klaus stopped. What? Why do you identify with Germany? asked Klaus, his voice calmer. What do you mean? You know how mad the English are for football. When I was about six, some boy came and said, Your team is terrible. They're at the bottom of the third division. He was a West Ham supporter. I said, You only support your team because you happen to be born where you were born. If you were born here, you would be supporting my team. Klaus's lip curled. So you believe that a nation is like a football team? Don't be obtuse, snapped Tom. It insults us both and the circumstances. I am proud of my culture, of my country, of my race and its history. But why? Why? Why Germany has contributed so much to world culture? No! No! cried Tom in frustration. Not Germany. Individuals who happen to live in Germany. So there is no such thing as British culture? There is. But it is measured in relation to what is good as is ours. And what is good to us is what is good for Germany. Not in England. Not there. There, what is good is what is good morally, regardless of nationalism. But there is no absolute good. Said Klaus, no reality, no good, no senses, no individuals. Everyone is just a fragment of the larger social good. We, you, and I are just reflections of the larger being. A man stands in front of a faceted mirror. What fool would say that each fragment of his reflection is as important as the man himself, or more important? So, it is with society. The individual belongs to the group, because the group is everything, and the individual nothing. And. If the individual refuses to surrender his rights to the group, that cannot be. The individual can only realize his identity in service to the group. But if he refuses, then he is a cancer and must be dealt with. I dislike such formulations because they are impossible under an ideal society. But if you press me, I shall not shrink from them. Tom stopped walking and stood in silence, his head lowered every sense alert. Somewhere there was the dim rumble of an explosion. Snatches of violent songs echoed around the streets. An acrid smell of burning meat stung his nose. Harsh laughter broke against the locked shatterers. Tom closed his eyes. The very bones of the city seemed to be groaning, it was a city of virulent young. It was a city without law. It was a cage of a city, a city which kept all but the virulent young locked up. It was a city where fast fists and poisoned minds held sway. Uneducated youths broke windows and bones, shouting the slogans of over-educated youths. It seemed to Tom that over the sky of Berlin was a bottomless cosmic sneer a hatred of the inherited world, a sneer which wanted to blow away the fragile buildings and send everyone spinning back to a time of simple crafts and small cottages, a time of hearty peasantry, cheery songs and thick-waisted women, a world with woods to spare, a homespun world, a medieval world. And that was... One side of the city, that was the side which fed the dreams of the youths raised on Kant, on Hegel, on Schopenhauer, and Marx, and Nietzsche, and Freud. A side of the city which hated reason, and progress, and capitalism. A side which groaned under the rational buildings which pierced its skin like wasps, which yearned to throw them off and race free into a fairy tale past. This was part of Klaus's fantasy, thought Tom. Part of the fear and hatred of the modern world which had gone so deep into the German soul that it was like the physics of its every movement, every reaction, every plan. But the other side was purely technological. The other side of the city wanted to spread out like a steel virus across the world. It did not want the medieval village but the medieval cruelty. It hated reason, the West, and the Enlightenment so much that it could not stand even the secret thoughts of the village peasant. It sought to overrun the spirit of man, to bury it under the claustrophobic itching of a million marching metal ants. It was a possessive side of the city. It could not stand for a single question, a single opposition, a single doubt. Even the flicker of an eye was cause for destruction. It could not rest. It could not look inward. It had to overrun because it had no principles of compromise. Tom looked at Klaus's pale face. The memory of countless arguments came back to him. He remembered the promise he had made to himself and kept in third year, never argue with a religious person who can fall back on faith. It was forever maddening, and it happened with Klaus, although Klaus was not specifically religious. Klaus claimed that religion was only of interest in an anthropological or social sense. Tom would press him for arguments about the existence of God, but Klaus would just withdraw into statements of second-hand faith. It doesn't matter whether God exists, Tom he would say with annoying patience. It does matter whether people believe he exists. Tom would demand to hear Klaus's position on the issue, but Klaus would smile, duck his head and say, I am an academic. I have no right to entertain positions. My only position is curiosity about the human. Klaus had never been so irresponsible as to claim that any contradictions in his ideas were just operations of the dialectic. He was, however, always able to retreat to this if pressed too closely. In our experience, sensual data is consistent, Tom, I will grant you that. But the operations of the dialectic do not conform to that kind of consistency. It follows a higher course, which I can no more explain than I can demonstrate. It exists, though, nonetheless. How do I know? Well, sadly, if you have to ask, it cannot be explained. Tom had stopped arguing with Klaus a few months before he had left Oxford for good. He gave up the chase, regretfully, with great personal pain, and now, staring at Klaus, he suddenly realized that he had argued with Klaus the same way that he had argued with his mother, and still felt the compulsion to throw Klaus against the wet wall and beat some sort of opinion out of him, something which could be used to build something other than opinion, Nothing higher and dialectical and contradictory, but some elemental truth. Something which could be used as a rational measure. Something like two and two make four. But that passion had never worked. And Tom fought against it now, now that he was deep in the heart of the dying city. That passion was a cliff which could only end in the extinction of them both. Klaus could not be pursued because Klaus did not run. Klaus could not be fought because Klaus did not fight. Klaus could not be defeated because Klaus did not exist. Tom shuddered, and it felt as if a vast shadow had come between him and the flames. Klaus does not exist. The thought inhabited him in a rush, like soldiers bursting through the walls of a long-besieged city, finding their own brothers within. Tom's brow contracted. Klaus's face grew pale. He extended a thin arm. Tom, are you all right? Tom took an involuntary step back. If Klaus does not exist, what sort of world shall his emptiness seek to create? No, that is too far, too fast. Klaus does not have any opinions. Klaus acts on wild impulses. He is full of strange directions, undigested passions. Nothing holds him together. It is, it is him or me. Either I shall survive, or he shall, my world, or his death. What, Tom? asked Klaus, his face softened in genuine concern. But something of Tom's thoughts passed between them because Klaus's white hand rose to his throat. Tom suddenly saw Klaus's throat torn open and heard a rasping, terrible breath. It's not true, whispered Klaus, then frowned as if wondering at his own words. No, said Tom softly. And then, It came to him what was missing. If Klaus has no fixed opinions, then there can be no way for us to disagree. And then he remembered the sight of Klaus beating the fascist's head with the empty beer pitcher. This is the only way that he can disagree. Tom, you're scaring me, smiled Klaus, attempting a light tone. They entered the vast chamber through a little door. There were a few bored reporters sitting their feet up on the wooden balcony. They had the resigned angry look of men who had, through their own incompetence and indifference, ended up in a very poor place, and feel that a more just universe would have spared them this fate. One of them was sucking a lollipop. The other shifted his legs in a manner which made it clear that it was a ducal favor only when Klaus asked him to. Tom and Klaus sat in the front. After having lunch with a few of Klaus's friends, they had come to the Reichstag to see a debate. Klaus had been, Tom noticed, unwilling to admit where they were going. There were many smirks around the table when Klaus finally admitted their destination. A thin woman had laughed harshly. Good Lord, why don't you just take him directly to the museum? Tom leaned forward, putting his elbows on the wide wooden balcony, staring down. The chamber was huge, well-lit, and sparsely occupied. A huge German flag hung vertically against the far wall. Large chandeliers hung down from thick chains, with little electric cables running between the links. A bald man was speaking, his sweaty dome shining like another light. Tom kept thinking that he was about to wipe his forehead, but he never did, not even after he sat down. Men wandered in and out, occasionally laughing at something unrelated to the speaker's words. There was an air of intensity on the speaker's part and inconsequentiality on the part of the listeners. But even the bald man did not seem to be quite intense. It was more like professional desperation, Tom thought. As if he knew what he was saying was useless, but he was paid to be passionate about it. This kind of bad acting was familiar, at least, from student plays. The bald man was saying, And it is not that the landowners object to an increase on land taxes? No, indeed. When it comes to the national good, they are as willing as any other group to share the load. But why, indeed, are they considered to be the only source of income? Surely there are other groups which could be more profitably taxed. What about a tax on foreign exchange? Or on millionaires, or luxury automobiles. These suggestions are not made out of a desire to escape an honorable burden, but rather because that burden is so honorable. Landowners desire nothing more than to contribute to social security. But, my friends, at a time when this awful depression is at last beginning to lift, when we are beginning to see the light at the end of our long, long tunnel at such a time, is it wise to inflict another tax on our landowners? A catcall came from a lounging, black-shirted group of men. Nazis, thought Tom. Be happy they are left with anything, Baldy. A point of order, but I shall not press it, for even my friends across the hall can see that if we add more taxes to the landowners, then all that shall happen is that the cost of producing food will go up. Inflation will return. Jobs will be lost. It is not productive, my friends, cried the man in slightly more genuine desperation. It will not help our collective national cause. Then let them give up their villas, your precious landowners, cried one Nazi lazily. Or their concubines, cried another. We do not care to hear arguments about the national interest, drawled another. Adolf Hitler is the national interest. Take it up with him if you have the courage. The bald man nodded rapidly. These replies are not to the point. Let them absorb the extra costs, cried a man in a three-piece suit. Are they so poor that they cannot afford a fennec, a loaf, less profit? They are already stretched, my friends, gulped the bald man. Yet still, cried a communist from the middle ranks, still they can afford you. Return your paycheck, capitalist lackey, and let that be applied to the costs of bread. We are not unwilling to share the burden— "'Then why are you here?' demanded a Nazi. "'What are you saying except get the money you need from someone else? "'You are a coward! Point point, point of order, Mr. Speaker!' An incredibly ancient man, who Tom had not noticed perhaps thinking him some kind of well-appointed gargoyle, let a gavel fall most plaintively. "'You cannot use such terms.' Our apologies, said the man. Let us say instead that those who wish to throw their loads under the backs of others are cowards. From this, the house might draw any conclusion it wishes. The argument went back and forth for about 15 minutes more. Tom turned to Klaus. Klaus shrugged eloquently. As the argument was winding down, a burly man in shirt sleeves, and visible even from Tom's vantage point, a very poorly knotted tie, came into the chamber. The speaker recognized him. He took a podium in the middle and began speaking. Brothers, he cried in a raspy voice, the solutions which the trade unions have put forward are up for voting within the week. I've been asked to come and present the arguments once more for the 36-hour work week. Several groans rang out. Some jeers rang out from the communists. Social fascist, You don't deal with the devil! Join us and work whenever you like! The man waited for the cries to diminish. They did not. Finally he turned to the speaker, but the sound of the gavel was too soft to help. The burly man began speaking through the jeers. If we adopt this measure, then the working week becomes nine-tenths what it was before. One-tenth of the work will not be done. This will make more jobs. This will reduce... Unemployment, with fewer men unemployed, we have to pay out less as a society in unemployment insurance, and with more men working, we will have more income in taxes. It is a foolproof measure, my friends. If it's foolish, you're proof of that. What happened since we went down from the 45 to the 40-hour work week? Shouted a fascist. Nothing, worse than nothing. You feed us poison, we get sick. So now you say more poison will make us better. Klaus whispered to Tom. Since the summer, they've had little power. This is mostly for show. For who? Klaus shrugged. Midsummer, the Nazis got almost 14 million votes. That's 230 seats. Not enough for a majority. There are 608 in the Reichstag. But they are the largest single party. Hitler went to Hindenburg demanding power. Tom frowned. Hindenburg from the Great War? Klaus nodded. 85, senile, and a monarchist to boot. Instead, Hindenburg gave power to two truly strange men, von Papen, who never even got elected to the Reichstag and whose party, the Catholic Center, has completely disowned him. He was named Chancellor in June. He's got no power in Parliament. He's just been ruling by presidential decree. Who's the other man? whispered Tom. Klaus frowned. He could not hear Tom over the rising jeers and insults from the floor. Tom repeated his question. General Kurt von Schleicher, Tom almost smiled. Really? Schleicher was German for intriguer or sneak. It's quite fitting. In May, Schleicher got Hindenburg to dismiss the last chancellor who had the backing of a major party. For midsummer, the Reichstag has had no real constitutional powers. So what's going to happen? asked Tom, staring at the huge chamber at the lounging, sneering totalitarians. At the sweaty, shaken appeasers. It was almost incomprehensible there seemed to be no respect for law, compromise, democracy, or capitalism left. A war of all against all. Klaus said, What has happened is that the government has been taken over by special interest groups. You can see them down there. Everyone is trying to wrestle special favors out of the state. Everyone's trying to shift the burden of paying for those favors onto someone else. It's like watching a Petri dish. "'everyone trying to eat everyone else, "'everyone out for their self-interest alone, "'no sense of the common good. "'We are getting more and more sick "'of these endless, futile battles. "'This is freedom. "'Freedom does not work.' "'Freedom,' murmured Tom. "'The argument about the 36-hour work week "'seemed to wind down. "'Another man got up. "'He was a young man just crossing over "'into German middle-age corpulence.' Brothers, he cried, let us turn from our petty infighting and confront the gravest crisis of our modern age to hell with the capitalists, their desires are part of history. Amen, brother. You have no right to say amen, communist. Throughout this great land, we have eight million unemployed men. We have no need to argue capitalism versus socialism. We have only to find work for these men. Let the government beg Borrow or steal, if it must, but let it give bread to these men. Let us build great roads, high monuments, or government housing, but let us build, my brothers. Hell, let us dig ditches and fill them back in again, whatever it takes. But if we only debate, our heads shall be hung from the highest pikes. What's your policy? I propose, my brothers, a special inheritance tax at 80% on estates over 100,000 marks. This should net us 200 million marks in the first year alone. We use this as collateral for borrowing money from the British. They fund most of our loans as it is. We use this spar of money for great public works, the greatest public works the world has ever seen. Every house, a hanging garden, if that is what is required. What about when it has to be paid back? That can be dealt with when the time comes. The world must get back on its feet someday. What about the long term? In the long term, shouted the man, we are all dead. Rakus' laughter rose. Might not be as long as you think, traitor. Point of order. The gavel went unheard. Another man rose, arguing that manufacturers needed to be exempt from at-source taxes, that they should be shifted to at-purchase consumers. He was derided for wanting to shift taxes from the rich to the poor. Another man argued that what was required was government subsidies for research and development. He was derided as providing nothing tangible in the present. Another man wanted more subsidies for the arts, noting that they employed many talented people and were responsible for a lot of tourism. He was derided for putting circuses before bread. Another wanted a new tax on diamonds. Another wanted to break the power of the unions. Another wanted to expand the laws against monopolies. Another wanted to require university students to perform manual labor in the summers for no discernible reason other than rank anti-intellectualism. Another wanted to find and subsidize intelligent children of poor parents. Another wanted to fund the children of pure German couples. Another wanted to impose more taxes on Jews. Another wanted to end the foreign exchange of the mark to prevent a flight of currency. Another wanted extra holidays for teachers. The centrist parties were locked and jeered at by the totalitarian parties. It was clear to Tom what the totalitarian parties wanted. They wanted to cripple democracy in the hopes that general panic would overrun all debate, forcing more and more radical solutions until a dictatorship was achieved. But isn't democracy already crippled, he thought, watching the rolling frustration churning around the Great Hall. Every one person's gain is another person's loss. Everyone is using the power of the state to lever money their way, so there is a general loss of wealth. I demand that the government take a pound from you and give it to me. The government takes 20 pence to transfer it. You lose a pound, I gain 80 pence in that loss. And his mind seemed to fly above the city over Germany as a whole, and imagined that the whole horde of entrepreneurial life-givers, the arteries of the economy, were paralyzed by sudden waves of changing regulations. And what incentive would they have to work like dogs building businesses? They are taxed at source and cannot even give their money to their children. And what if they wanted to hire any of these 8 million unemployed? Surely there should be a great incentive to hire them because they should be very cheap, but they can't. There are so many regulations involved in hiring someone. And even if they were content with things today, who is to say what they shall look like tomorrow? No, I can see that they would wait it out, wait to see what was going to happen. The afternoon was wearing on. Finally, about a quarter to five, another man got up. He was very tall, very old, and dressed in an antiquated suit. He said, In the 1920s, the German government spent mostly borrowed money we relied almost exclusively on American loans. The money we borrowed went into public works, blatant vote buying and loans to political friends. The banking sector repeatedly warned the government and the public that if the Americans were forced to call in their short-term loans, we would be unable to survive it. When the New York Stock Exchange crashed in 1929, this is exactly what happened. We were required to pay our bills, and we could not. Cries arose, Ancient history! Do you mean the 1820s, old man? Have you come to write a check, banker? We could not meet our obligations, said the old man with strange weary power, leaning forward on his podium, except by cutting internal spending. And so the entire structure of our economy, which was entirely dependent on excessive state spending has collapsed. The government has no money left to pay its friends. We are saddled with interest payments which clean out our treasury. Our economy is in ruins. 1929, two million unemployed. 1931, five million unemployed. Today, eight millions. In 1929 our industrial production had just returned to its 1914 levels. Now it has dropped by 58%. In 1931 we came close to bankruptcy and were only saved by another round of borrowing. As a state our costs have gone up and our income has gone down. So what have we done? We have raised taxes. We have passed laws limiting foreign investment. We have strangled the free flow of labor and capital. We have raised the minimum wage. We have granted the unions unjust powers. We have nationalized industries. The German government now controls more of the economy than any other democracy in the world. Thank you, Professor. How interesting these statistics are. Go yourself, old man. Talk on, talk on. We are sharpening our blades for ancient necks. The old man's voice rose over the loutish jeering in sudden power. We think that freedom has failed? Let me ask you this. Who is now free? Not the capitalists. They are taxed at unsustainable rates. They have to try to comply with endless laws, deal with bottomless bureaucracies, shifting regulations. The working man cannot find work except through protectionist unions who would rather keep their own members in jobs than open the market to the unemployed. The landowner? Taxes strangle him. He cannot freely sell his land. Farmers? They are forbidden to sell their goods overseas. What about the mere individual? He faces all powerful government-sponsored interest groups at every turn. He cannot get their kinds of favors and privileges unless he joins them. He must join some group hoping to grab some scrap from the general melee or perish alone. How is he free? On what grounds do we condemn freedom? Everything is coerced by the power of the government over the economy, even now. And yet, as we pile more decrees upon more tariffs, upon more laws, upon more taxes, we find things are getting worse instead of better. We blame freedom because the power of the government is not working. We blame freedom because compulsion is not working. Freedom has not failed. Compulsion has failed. What's your point, geezer? My point is that to restore prosperity and freedom, we must repeal the government controls over the economy. Back to the sweatshops, he says. What about the 19th century old man? You were there. At the beginning, looks like, down with laissez-faire, down with the night watchman state, down with child labor, down with classical liberalism, down in front. The old man stared at the jeering mob. He nodded gravely, slowly. I did not expect to be heard, he said. I only wanted to be on record. He picked up his papers, arranged them carefully, and walked slowly out of the chamber. Around him the Nazis and fascists and communists pretended to spit on him. He walked with the kind of dignity which belonged to another age. To my age, thought Tom, to the 19th century. Another thought fell on him, and he felt his nose sting with coming tears. "'He's going to go home, kiss his wife, and kill himself. And there is something honourable in that.' "'Who is that?' he asked, turning to Klaus. Klaus's nose wrinkled. "'Some capitalist apologist. Have you had enough?' Tom nodded slowly. They rose and left the chamber of horrors without a backward glance. Outside, the light was almost gone. A chill wind wandered down the street. Dark-coated people hurried along the sidewalks, their faces indistinguishable under hats and scarves. The grey stone of the buildings looked like morning ashes or evening Gravestones. "'You are truly fucked,' said Tom, grimacing in mute apology. Klaus grinned. "'It is truly a heady time to be a German.' "'No, really,' said Tom, leaning in and resisting an urge to grab the German boy's lapels. "'What do you think is going to happen?' Klaus shrugged. "'Hitler will probably get in. That madman? Mad?' frowned klaus on what grounds well tom scowled that's a lengthy chat let's do it another time all right said klaus slowly they walked in silence the life of the city seemed to go on around them tom could not sense any real panic men and women hurried home for their suppers there weren't many children in the streets but tom thought that perhaps the houses all had wonderful gardens out back where kids played tag in the growing dark. However, he remembered that there had been few children in London when he first got there, too. But But the wolves were coming out. As night fell and the bustling industrious employed Germans began to vanish into their homes, another sort of loping pack began to emerge. It's like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde thought Tom. Sensible middle-class white-collar workers gave way to roaming packs of yelping youths who tweaked the remaining pedestrians and collided into each other with sudden fists. He and Klaus walked in silence. Tom had a sudden strange urge. He wanted to take Klaus's hand. It must be agony to see this happening to your homeland, he thought tenderly. Klaus seemed sort of unable to process what was happening. Tom imagined that Klaus would gaze in curious, split wonder, even at his own disemboweling. Death is just the dialectic to life, he imagined him murmuring. What's the recital? Oh, it's a goof, said Klaus happily. A fun piece, it's Heil Hitler, cried a harsh voice behind them. Tom suddenly got the impression that Klaus wanted to take his hand. Klaus turned around, his arm snapping up. Heil Hitler! He shouted, his teeth wide and eyes narrow. Tom turned and saw a group of about eight brown-shirted youths. Their eyes swiveled from Klaus's raised arm to Tom's lowered one, like they were watching a tiny tennis match. You do not salute the Führer? asked a tall man in front. He had a shaven head and facial stubble. I always said thought Tom, that you should never trust anyone whose beard is longer than his hair. The man also had a German shepherd puppy at his feet. Tom leaned forward, cocking his head. Ich nicht sprechen Sie Deutsch. The bald youth smirked. Yet you do not speak German with a perfect accent, which is most unusual, he said in German. You are an Englander, he asked. Getting no response from Tom, he turned to Klaus. Your friend is from England, he asked. Tom did not like the fact that the other young men, a little squall of shaven heads, seemed to be settling into their own hips, as if they were quite content to be there for a while. Klaus did not lower his hand. Drop your hand, blondie, snarled the bald man. Klaus did so and nodded slowly. So we have an Englander, said the bald man, turning to Tom. His nostrils seemed to widen slightly, as if scenting something unfamiliar. His dog growled ever so slightly. This Englander, who does not speak German perfectly, so he will not understand if I say that I want my dog to fuck his queen. The man's bald head came in closer, turning slightly. I want my dog to fuck his queen, and myself to fuck his king, and they will sing Deutschland, Deutschland, über alles in perfect harmony as we fuck them together, me and my dog. Tom's eyes did not. Widen, he forced himself to breathe slowly. Klaus did not move. The man paused. Tom expected more abominations, but he seemed to be at the limit of his creativity. The head withdrew slowly. He turned and slapped Klaus in the face hard. Teach your friend better manners, he spat. He is your guest. When in Rome, do as the barbarians do. There was a cacophony of laughter at this line, obviously, used before. The laughter was not of men who find something funny, but rather of men who think it important to show that they can laugh openly. After the Nazis had left, crossing the street to accost an old man, Tom looked to Klaus. Klaus returned his gaze. He did not rub his cheek. He said nothing, then laughed suddenly. They are just uneducated, he said "'graphic and uneducated. "'They are not representative of every Nazi. "'There are Nazis in England, you know, and America, "'and Stalin is no prince.' "'Is this common?' asked Tom. "'Well, I was hoping to take you ten Berlin blocks "'without running into the ranks of the frustrated unemployed, "'but there it is.' "'Klaus shrugged. "'They came. "'They went.' "'Tom did not move. "'His face said, "'You are too matter-of-fact.' "'We cannot give them jobs,' said Klaus, his voice rising. "'We cannot give them wives. "'What are they to do?' We have no way to compel their obedience. The contract is broken. All right, murmured Tom, his voice low, perhaps in counterpoint to Klaus's tone. All right. We shan't let it spoil our evening, said Klaus decisively. His shoulders jerked involuntarily, as if he were shrugging on a heavy coat which had slipped. Onward and upward! They found the recital hall, which was of medium size and filled with people of extremes. This phrase flew into Tom's mind almost unbidden. The crowd, smoking and drinking in the entrance hall, were loud, derisive, mocking, funny, and extreme. Tom's eyes flew from man to woman to man. There were no averages. People were either depressingly thin or offensively obese. They were either glacially beautiful or malevolently ugly. He did not see anyone with what he would consider a normal haircut. Anyone who wore glasses wore the lenses in frames that were either thick and black, covered with glittering rhinestones, or almost non-existent. He counted five women with bright feather boas, and two men. The men looked either wiltingly homosexual or brutally hetero. The women looked like librarians or strippers. Even everyone's eyes seemed extreme. They were afraid, or mocking, or scornful, or withdrawn, or shy, or belligerent. Anything but polite and receptive. Tom could not find anyone with regular casual athlete muscles. They were either painfully anemic or heavily muscle-bound. No one had a simple beard. No one was clean-shaven either. There was a fantastic array of various tufts, lines, whorls, and intricate designs of stubble. There was not a single natural hair color, or even a hair color found in nature. Footwear was quite ridiculous. Women wore either insane heels or athletic shoes. Men wore thin ankle-high sandals or heavy Dutch black leather pumps with little clasps, which looked like cobblers out of fairy tales. No one seemed unconcerned with their own appearance. Even those with messy hair had arranged their chaos carefully, There was very little sexual tension in the room. There was a vague cloud of depression, of hopelessness, of desperation. Everyone wanted to laugh, but no one found anything very funny. Everyone wanted to be attractive, but to be loved for something other than their appearance. Everyone wanted to be sexy, but was too screwed up to have any real desires. Tom moved into the crowd, just behind Klaus, like a shark into a jittery crowd of waiting Boy Scouts. People drew back they had to. Into this broken, clutching community Tom brought such elemental health that they withdrew, casting him looks of uncomprehending resentment. Don't you know that you're not supposed to be here? We don't know that we're doomed to be here if you are not here. Tom "'smiled vaguely at people trying not to show his distaste. "'It seems odd,' he thought, "'watching the little blonde whirlpool at the back of Klaus's head, "'that Klaus has not succumbed to this. "'Then an odd thought hit him. "'These people are still healthier than he is "'because they wear their distress and alienation on the outside. "'They are visible to others and in the mirror. "'Klaus is not. Klaus is not.' Klaus brought him a drink of wine, and Tom sipped it gratefully. "'Klaus!' shrieked a female voice. Tom saw Klaus recoil, as if he were going to be asked to salute the Führer again. A fat, cherubic-faced woman pushed her way through the crowd. "'Where have you been hiding, you naughty country boy?' she pouted, holding out her cheek expectantly. He leaned forward and kissed it. "'How are you, Greta?' "'I am well!' she said, in mock formality, making a little bow. "'And you?' "'Fine.' "'What happened to your face?' she asked, reaching forward and pinching it. Klaus grimaced. "'Did you get spanked by a fascist? Remember the salute? Heil whatever you've got. I got confused yesterday, got up with a hangover, and hiled myself in the mirror while brushing my teeth. Tore my gum,' she said, lifting her lip. Klaus averted his eyes. tan she asked, still holding up her lip. "'My friend Tom is here,' said Klaus, introducing them. Greta looked at Tom loviciously. "'An Englander here! Do you work for the embassy? Helga works for the embassy. Helga!' she shouted, her voice suddenly booming. "'No, I'm just here to see the sights.' She pressed her ample breasts together, grinning up at him. The crack of her cleavage... "'looked like a bottom to him. "'Oh!' cried Greta. "'Some sights he is too shy to see.' "'Greta!' sighed Klaus. "'She put a red-nailed finger to her mouth, "'bulging her eyes and puffing out her cheeks "'in the little-girl manner which Tom hated. "'It always reminded him of drunken women "'pretending to regret uttering a swear word "'or touching a man's crush. "'Oopsie!' "'He always wanted to slap such women. "'He wanted to slap Helga now.' He started crossing his arms across his chest, but then remembered that such women always commented on body language and left them by his side. "'Did you hear about Thomas?' asked Greta, winking at Tom and leaning to whisper in Klaus's ear. Her left hand continued to play over her bosom. She wanted, Tom imagined, to give the impression that it was an unconscious, sensual gesture. It did not. It looked like a monkey's paw scratching something obscene. Another woman arrived, hard, cynical eyes glinted behind thick, black frames. She was thin, hipless, and wore a black dress wrapped too tight around her shapeless frame. She looked like a bolt of black cloth. "'I am Helga,' she said, holding her hand out to Tom. It seemed too low to kiss, but he did it anyway. She burst out into laughter, turning his head. "'I hold my hand out for him to shake, and he kisses it!' "'She said a few times to no one in particular. "'Then she leaned forward and said, "'You're not from around here, but then who is?' "'I'm from England,' said Tom, taking another sip of his wine, "'resisting the urge to throw it all back. "'Her eyes seemed to flash with fear. "'Her mouth worked. "'Her lipstick was too red, her face too pale. "'She looked like a desperately seductive clown. "'What are you doing here?' She asked, her voice slightly more genuine. I'm visiting Klaus, my friend. Helga frowned. Your friend? Her brow contracted as if trying a mental calculation she knew in advance was beyond her grasp. How is he your friend? Does she mean how on earth, or where did you meet? We went to school together. Ah! She clapped her hands. At Oxford? So what do you think of our little capital? "'I think it is rather intense,' she smiled. "'That's true. I can barely walk. I had sex with five men last night.' Tom's eyes widened. She did not seem to find the statement unusual. Part of him wanted to ask more, part of him wanted to run. The lights flicked on and off a few times. Helga leaned forward and took his hand in her brittle claw. "'Come and sit with me.' "'Actually, I hope my seat is assigned,' said Tom, then blushed. "'Sorry, that's the wrong word, not hope. Think.' Her eyes narrowed. He had clearly committed some unforgivable sin. "'You bastard!' she hissed. "'He almost took a step back. The venom was sudden, bottomless.' Greta pulled back from Klaus, saw Helga's face, and laughed harshly. "'Pry that goddamned weasel off your face, Helga, "'or we'll have to turn you over to the fascists again.' Helga's face paled, she vanished into the crowd. Come to my flat after, said Greta, pinching both of their cheeks. It's absinthe night. As they went into the music hall, Tom glanced at a sign. Atanus the Gilnum. There was more incomprehensible text, but he was swept with the crowd into the hall. At one point a hand clutched at his buttocks, he didn't try to see who it was. Klaus and Tom sat in some uncomfortable wooden chairs, which were too small, and seemed to have been culled from some kindergarten class. There was a magnificent piano in the front of the hall. A young man came out dressed in a gorgeous, immaculate tuxedo. Tom blinked there was nothing unusual about his appearance. He began to relax and only then noticed that his belly muscles had been steadily contracting all day, ever since they sat down in the viewing balcony of the Reichstag. You are going to love this, whispered Klaus, leaning over his eyes shining. This man is beyond genius. The man bowed gravely, accepting the applause with old-world graciousness. Tom leaned back into his chair and closed his eyes. He felt that the music would wash away the warped crowd seated around him. That only the music or the audience could exist, not at the same time, not in the same place. The first note came with a long pause. It sounded lovely. Tom's face sacked. He loved live music. The sound from a gramophone was just too harsh, too crackly for about the 5,000th time in his life. He wished he had stuck with his piano lessons as a child. The second note seemed to take his breath away. It was wrong. It was vaguely, vaguely familiar, but very, very wrong. Then notes came in rapid succession. No, thought Tom, not succession. They just come tumbling out without rhyme or reason. The pianist's page turn returned a page, but it seemed odd. Isn't it wonderful? whispered Klaus so softly that Tom could barely hear him. What is it? asked Tom, feeling an urge to stop his ears. It was the music of madness. It's Beethoven. A new Beethoven? Klaus shook his head in glee. Newly discovered old Beethoven! He shook his head again. He pressed his lips almost to Tom's ears. "'This man has spent his whole life "'learning how to play music backwards.' "'What?' "'It's Moonlight Sonata,' "'whispered Klaus in strange exultation. "'Though you should hear his esil-roof.' "'Tom's brow contracted involuntarily, "'almost painfully. "'Turning his head in slow increments, "'he gazed over the crowd. "'Some of the eyes were glazed, bored.' Some were self-consciously closed, and fingers traced the music in the air of pursed lips. Some were also looking around and fell when his gaze met their own. And this whole broken crowd sat, like slaves in the belly of a Roman galley, listening to the tortured music flowing over them, going back in time. The music flowed back towards its beginning, And perhaps they hoped that it could also take them back in time, back to a time before they were broken. It was a long and gruesome recital. Tom knew that the music would never be the same again. It was, somehow, like knowing the day and time of your own death. The span of time was the same, but the experience was now forever horrible. He felt angry, angry and hopeless. He wanted to grab this crowd by the neck and tell them to shut the fuck up and go away, to find some other way to, well, to deal with whatever the hell they were dealing with by murdering Beethoven. Against his wishes, Klaus got Tom another glass of wine afterwards. They stood in the hallway. The weird energy of the weird music had somehow infected the crowd. They seemed more belligerent. Klaus, said Tom, feeling as if he were now the anthropologist Klaus always claimed to be. What is the point? Before Klaus could answer, a tall, sallow-faced man turned to him from the crush of the crowd. What is the point? the man asked. You ask this when you can buy a recording of the best pianist in the world playing Beethoven for half a dozen marks. So? So it's like photography, why— Spend a week painting a stream and a camera can get it better than you could dream of in under a minute. You used to have to study anatomy to paint a great nude. Now all you have to do is find a way to get a woman to take her clothes off and take a snapshot. Tom did not answer for a moment, don't, don't. But he could not resist. But the camera can't get the passion of the scene. The recording is scratchy. The photograph, black and white. That's not it. Oh, demanded the man. Then what is? It's Tom frowned. It wasn't that he was afraid of offending the man, after all, it could well have been this man who had clutched his buttocks on the way in, but rather that he really didn't know. Some vague scraps of ideas ran through his head, but— "'Then, in the absence of input, my thesis stands,' said the man, clicking his heels. "'With your permission?' he turned away. Klaus smiled sadly. "'You really find it that awful?' Tom was about to reply, but then something happened which dried his tongue and sunk his heart. The lights flicked on and off a few times. Tom groaned almost inaudibly. He just didn't have the strength. Next up, Mozart, cried Klaus, grabbing at Tom's arm. The crowd surged forward as one a fleshy sea of dead peacocks. The next morning, Tom woke up late. The quality of the day before had been so dreamlike that he first of all imagined that he was back in his little room. He tried to imagine which way he was facing on his bed. He reached out and tried to touch a wall, but his fingers just floated through empty space. Klaus was watching him, sitting, and sipping something from an old, delicate and chipped china cup. Good morning, sleepyhead. What time is it? Ten-twenty, said Klaus, not glancing at his watch. Tom craned his head, looking at the wall over his pillow. No clock. He wanted to ask, how do you know, but feared that Klaus might interpret the question as an inquiry as to the nature of time and dialectic materialism. Tom stretched. He had a vague headache, some combination of jet-lag, three glasses of wine, he had always been terribly susceptible to alcohol, and the striking horror of this dying city. "'So, what's up for today?' he asked. Klaus smiled. "'We are going to a rally, then we are having dinner with some friends, then we are going to a play.' Tom almost laughed. "'A rally? (laughs) Who's speaking? Representatives of every party.' What are they saying? There is an election this month. Wasn't there one in April? Yes, but you saw what was happening yesterday. Hindenburg keeps appointing these chancellors with extraordinary powers who have no backing from the Reichstag. Everything is paralyzed, so we're having another election, and the Nazis are worried they're losing ground. That's why they're joining up with the communists about the transportation strike. They're almost bankrupt. The next election should sort things out. Tom blinked. This is all a bit much before tea when is the rally one tom paused i wonder is is it safe the rally it should be is this something you want to go to i know all the positions already i thought you might be interested well i am i suppose but political education in germany seems to be rather harsh klaus smiled isn't it everywhere whether we see it or not Tom shook his head, trying to wriggle free of his deep ache. Tea! They had brunch in the hotel and then walked for a little time downtown. Tom was quite amazed at the change in Berlin between night and day. It looked like any other prosperous western city. The unemployed milled around, but they were slightly more jovial than the political youths. They joked and cajoled passers-by for spare change and broke into song on occasion— They reminded Tom of the British unemployed. They seemed hearty, as if they were going through a bad time, but were determined to weather it with composure. They believe things are going to get better, thought Tom. And a sudden question came to him. He wanted to ask who was voting for the Nazis, but something restrained him. He glanced at Klaus walking beside him, seeming to absorb everything around him his pale eyes placid, his face untroubled. I don't know what really makes him tick, thought Tom suddenly. I've known him for three years, not counting the two years I spent in London after leaving Oxford, and I don't really understand his ideas. I am his guest, and this is his fatherland, and Gunther sent me here to understand something important, and I am not really grasping it at all, any of it. Klaus, he said, putting his hand on the German boy's shoulder. Klaus stopped and turned to him. Tom smiled. It looked as if a lamppost was growing out of its friend's head. That sounded most intimate, said Klaus. Are we going to cross the threshold? Klaus, what did you like about the concert last night? Klaus nodded, seeming to understand the depths of the question. Can we talk as we walk? I don't want to miss the beginning of the rally. They started off again. There was a long pause before Klaus spoke. Clouds were gathering over the tall and stained roofs of the ancient city. Everything began turning grey. The blue of the sky and yellow of the sun was overrun. The people began to turn grey under the whitening sky. The buildings were losing all colour. Once, as they passed by a church, Tom glanced at the stained-glass windows, and they seemed darkened beyond colour. They gave neither visibility nor decoration. As they walked, a few men came up and asked for money. Klaus answered them politely, giving them nothing but a civil recognition of a petition. They seemed to appreciate this more than a few coins, and retreated back to their alleys and doorways with a slightly more noble step. Dom, said Klaus eventually, everything in history is a kind of pendulum. The Middle Ages was one, then we swung to the Enlightenment, the Renaissance, the birth of the Scientific Revolution, and I know that these are the capital letters you approve of, much as if I were to utter 19th century. These rationalistic trends reached their meridian, their climax in the Industrial Revolution— And we all know the benefits they bestow. Many people did well, and not just the capitalists, but also the workers. But, Tom, the kind of world was lost there as well. A world probably too small for you and I, but a world that fits more of humanity than we would probably like to admit. You and I love knowledge and travel, but we are rare. Most people want crops in the field, a wife at the stove, a community of well-known faces, a porch with a favorite chair, and singing the songs in old age which they learned in their youth. Continuity, security, certainty. And the world has been ruled for the past 200 years by people like you and me. We have remade it in our image. And we have achieved many great things, wonders, truly unprecedented in history. But we have also destroyed many great things. Things unimportant to you and me. Knowledge multiplies, economies rise and fall, new inventions to be mastered flow at us like a torrent. Manufacturing methods change. What we learn in school is useless in middle age. What is man, the earth, the universe, truth, matter, religion, facts? Everything changes, advances, and retreats. Nothing is certain. Klaus smiled sadly. We are curious men. We like the freedom of uncertainty, but that's not for everyone. Many people feel as horrible in our world as we would in theirs. And we have had our way for a long, long time. This backlash should have been expected. People are getting sick of our kinds of freedoms. Our freedoms, the freedom to act and think and reason and argue and change, and progress towards a goal we know nothing of. What do they mean to a factory worker? He wants freedom from want, from insecurity, from poverty, and lying awake at night worrying about his job or his children's health. He wants freedom from fear. We cannot give him that. We can only win our freedoms at the expense of his. So now he has banded up against us. Can we blame him? He does not want what we want. There was a long pause. Tom nodded slowly the recital that's another kind of freedom said klaus smiling suddenly freedom from convention from tonality from reading left to right perhaps there's great fun in that kind of freedom and it is the end result of curiosity curiosity without rules murmured tom now now tommy said klaus wagging his finger rules were in place Last night, play backwards. That takes great discipline, more so than playing forward, which is intuitive. Yes, of course. So we have reached the end of the pendulum called objective rules, said Klaus. Now what is more important is subjective desires. Romanticism. You say that like it just shat in your mouth, laughed Klaus in protest. Really? Feelings are not the enemies of humanity? No, but... They must be strictly controlled. Why? That's such a medieval notion! We are not monks! We do not believe that feelings come from the devil! So, you're angry you just hit someone? Actually, said Klaus seriously, you are far more likely to end up hitting someone if you repress your feelings. This artificial straitjacket of rationality no longer fits the human soul, Tom. It was a toy which long outlasted its value. Are you passionate about, Klaus? Asked Tom, remembering his desire to understand him. Oh, that's... Complicated. Feelings flow and contradict each other. I think it might cause your little analytical head to explode. Tom laughed. Try. I am passionate about Germany. I think a great, modern experiment is underway, right in the heart of an ancient land. This is the place which history chooses to start her next great movement. The movement against reason! Klaus laughed. (laughs) I am going to shock you now. Perhaps. Reason is the great enemy of man. Reason dissects, cuts apart, splits into fragments, and analyzes the pieces with a yawn. Reason cuts men off from experience. Reason divides the day into little minutes. Reason conquers the world at the expense of the soul, of life. Reason removes everything great about a man and turns him into an accountant, a statistician, a tabulator of sense data. Reason kills love, love of life, of the future of one's fellow man. Reason turns the brotherhood of man into a dry calculation of mutual utility. The invisible hand hides the heart. We look at others and say, how can your existence benefit me materially? We do not look at them and say, your existence is a wonder, let us explore it. We become curious only about atoms, not others. Art dies, passion dies, love dies, the soul dies, and what do we get in return, the fucking steam engine? Klaus's face was hot, twisted. Tom gazed at him, feeling a sudden kind of terror but he thought I would be as passionate in my defense of England. That makes me passionate, said Klaus, his breath short after a few moments. I can truly see that, said Tom with feeling. So the concert last night was part of the assault on reason? I really hate that illusion of reason. It has been responsible for more deaths, more alienation than can ever be calculated. Rational people are dead. Do you think I am a rational man? Klaus smiled. Rational is a word with many applications. I think you are a rational man, in that you know that there is more to life than reason. The liver does not operate on reason but food. But without the liver, we are dead. I just hate how much emphasis is placed "'on the syllogism, as if we could all cuddle up to Aristotle "'and have him hold our hands as we fade into the next world. "'A man who pursues reason alone "'is like a man trying to live on only one kind of food. "'He might survive, in a manner of speaking, but why? "'What would be the point? "'I mean, no one has ever been able to create a purpose out of reason. "'You cannot get an ought out of an is,' "'said Tom, quoting one of their philosophy professors. "'Right!' said Klaus, jabbing his finger skyward, as if in answer a drop of rain spattered on the tip, as if he had torn the belly of a cloud. "'Nothing that makes life worthwhile can be sucked out of a syllogism—passion, unity, sacrifice—the group,' murmured Tom. "'The group, yes, why not? What are we as little individuals? We are atoms, cells, incomplete without the group.' There is a unity in the world which cannot be explained, which has to be experienced. It is joyful. It is ecstatic. It is, sadly, not parliamentary. It is the merging of supposed oneness into actual allness. Plato knew about it. The individual can only gain his true identity by merging with the group. Humanity is all. The individual is nothing. The individual is selfish, petty, grasping. He will sacrifice a million unknown others for his own daily bread. He knows nothing but his own motivations. He knows nothing of higher truths. He knows nothing of the universe beyond his own skin. He approaches others with suspicion. He cannot fathom that we are all the same, all one, all together. He wants to profit from others regardless of the general welfare. He is a parasite. Tom. "'Tried not to react. "'He tried not to lash out at his friend. "'Well, Reginald's friend,' he thought, "'but did not allow himself the relief of that thought. "'I am here. Reginald is not.' "'I want to thank you for telling me all that,' said Tom. "'The rain was growing from spotty to drizzly. "'You don't mind the rain, do you, Tom?' "'No.' said Tom, then shivered as an icy drop seemed to run all the way down his spine. When they got to the rally, they found an almost carnival atmosphere. It was mostly young people. It was set up in the large square of Gendarmermark. The rain had held up, and sleeping bags were being unrolled and spread out again. There was a sense of brotherhood in the square. People passed drinks around, shared cigarettes and food, and there were so many foot and back rubs going on that it looked to Tom as if everyone were joined into one giant pink spidery organism. He trod on one boy's hand, but the boy just winked at him, grinned, and gave him a thumbs-up. There was a great cordiality in the crowd. They acted as one, and Tom could not help but go over in his mind Klaus's speech. The crowd only acted against people who tried to push their way forward. They cried out and stood up, barring their way. There was no violence. It seemed like every man was trying to grow a beard. Hair was long, drugs were flowing around. The line-ups for public bathrooms were long, but people chatted and rarely seemed bothered. They let panicked boys and girls clutching their groins in ahead without complaint. Babies were scattered around, seemingly in the charge of... Whoever happened to be lounging nearby. Guitars were strummed, folk songs sung in breathy, blonde whispers by thin women with long hair. Occasional women were topless. Their breasts did not look good under the heavy skies. They had the appearance of fried eggs left in the rain for a week. There was groping. Bodies were shared as easily as water. There was slackness and expectation. There was unity and a vast lack of challenge. There was agreement, but it was an easy kind of agreement, an agreement not to disagree, like a woman erasing her own hopes in a vain desire to please everyone and losing self, hope, and relationships in the process. Gazing at the crowd, Tom felt very alienated and very alone. He also felt some anger and a little fear. He felt that this easy going crowd was like a group of lions lolling in the sun. They might disagree with each other lazily without rousing themselves, and all would be well unless an antelope came along. Then the lions would also not disagree with each other, but it would be a different kind of unity, a slinking, prowling unity whose only mercy was, in the eyes of the antelope, a quick death. Klaus stood on the outskirts of the crowd for about five minutes, shading his eyes from the cloud glare looking for some friends. Several groups clamored for he and Tom to join them. They did make a rather striking pair, Klaus's perfect head and Tom's long, slender frame. When Tom shrugged and pointed at Klaus and Klaus ignored them, the invitations turned to scorn. Clearly Tom and Klaus thought they were too good for them. Who needed them anyway, goddamn snobs? Finally, Klaus gave up. "'Let's just merge in,' he said, edging through the various groups. Tom walked behind him, wondering how far they would get before being challenged. It was quite fascinating. Occasional resentful glances rose towards them, but arms and legs were moved. Klaus did not press his way. He seemed not to expect to get forward, which was sort of his locomotion, Tom noticed. As long as he did not force his way forward, he was accepted.' "'Is this how a sperm gets into an egg?' wondered Tom. Eventually, they could go no further. They stood on a tiny square of concrete between a blue-and-white checked blanket and some sort of thin Mexican-woven rug. Tom stared at the stage while Klaus beamed at those around. Last brother,' asked a man of about twenty-five who was making a fairly successful run at looking like Jesus Christ. His eyes were lazy, his lids low. He chewed at his long brown hair. "'We are looking for some friends,' said Klaus. The man stared at him. His lips worked, trying to give birth to something profound, as befitted his appearance. "'That's the human condition, comrade,' he said, then shifted his long legs. "'Plop down here,' he gestured at his little blanket, probably regretting a lack of replicating loaves and fishes." All are welcome. Some other men and women turned around. Introductions flowed back and forth in a lazy manner. They were von der Vogel, visiting from a commune about 30 miles outside of Berlin. They were experimenting with collective ownership, communal sexual relations, group parenting, and a rotating laundry schedule. They had decided to abandon materialism and capitalist participation, choosing to grow their own crops. However, the problem was they liked getting stoned and found that being stoned killed their appetites, so they were growing mostly drugs now. They were currently debating whether to participate in capitalism enough to sell drugs to buy food. They were leaning to approving this, but only if they could trade goods without using cash. There were a few babies around. The stares of the adults were not quite of the thousand-yard variety, but were certainly far beyond the person they looked at. They asked few questions. Finding out that Tom was from England, one woman asked him if there were any jobs there, then subsided into inert exhaustion, as if the question had taken the last of her energy. Their messianistic leader, whose name was Levi, kept introducing them to everyone around, sometimes rising and calling out their names. Tom felt his headache really beginning to take root, growing down into his shoulders while reaching forward to his eyes. "'When does it start?' he asked Klaus, whispering so that Levi would not stare at him and murmur, "'It starts when it starts.' "'Soon,' said Klaus. His eyes wandered the crowd. "'Quite a turnout.' "'Spontaneous,' said Levi, who had started nodding slowly and could not seem to stop. It's collective hair, one comb, one part. "'What do you think of Hitler?' asked Tom, unable to resist the impulse. "'Is he here?' asked Levi, his eyes unmoving. "'No, he's speaking at Nuremberg today,' said Klaus. "'That man has a spiritual synthesis,' said Levi. "'He is a projection of the peasant.' Tom exchanged a glance with Klaus, who shrugged. The words don't matter, continued Levi. It's like he's knitting the future with his hands, something to cover us all. He is the center of a circle which has no center, because everyone is on the outside looking at him. A woman sitting nearby leaned towards Tom and said, We want his drugs, and all we have to do is listen. They're not mine said levi the woman finished the sentence for him they're the earth's she put a hand-rolled joint to her thin lips inhaling deeply we shifted from the earth she gulped holding in the smoke to the sky she exhaled aiming it at the clouds after about 20 minutes of occasional prophecy and continual smoke the first speaker took to the podium He was dressed well, in a thick white shirt, a narrow tie, and long corduroy trousers. The jeering came up as soon as he appeared. Klaus said, He's from the Catholic Central Party. They're not popular. Old-school, reactionary, not progressive at all, I'm surprised. They even bothered. The speaker struggled to be heard, but there was quite a lot of old fruit around, probably, from the communes, and the audience did not seem to be saving it for a more offensive speaker. Tom only heard a few phrases. Germany's past glories, a return to Christian values. Work will make you free. Roll up our sleeves and take our rightful place in European. Forge new ties with our former foes. Require everyone to make the necessary sacrifices. Forget capitalism, forget socialism, and embrace God. He gave up after about 15 minutes, and Tom felt briefly sorry for him. He imagined the man working on his speech, perhaps envisioning winning over the crowd in an unprecedented feat of oratory. He left the podium covered in many more colors than he had arrived with. The next speaker was a bullet-headed fascist. Tom almost groaned at the man's stereotypical appearance. Don't they ever recruit men with high intellectual foreheads? Why does every fascist have to have the shape of a human shell? Tom did not expect the fascist to get very far, but he was smarter than he looked. He started with some generalities about the need for unity, for cohesiveness in the face of corrosive social disintegration. He said that the fascists, unlike the Nazis, had no problems with the Jews. He said that they had no plans for world domination. They wanted a pure Germany for and by the Germans themselves, Those beyond our borders are of no concern to us. He promised to make the capitalists pay. He'd find a capitalist as anyone with savings. It seemed like a fairly safe route with this crowd. He preached sacrifice. He preached oneness. He preached the surrender of the self to a higher ideal. He preached making Germany perfect so that the world would be forced to follow Germany's example. He preached against communism as a Slavic phenomenon which could Never take proper root in German soil. And, he shouted, do we need Slavs to tell us how to deal with our exploiters? We have our own solutions. Universities need to be open to all. Compulsory youth service was essential. The state should manage but not run essential services. Art should be subsidized. Religion should be more personal. German freedom, not French laxness. He did not focus on the jobs for all message, which Tom thought was wise, given the crowd. The crowd did not respond to him, either with jeers or approval. A few groups of shaven heads and erect backs were scattered throughout the crowd, and they applauded stiffly, refusing to choke when smoke was blown in their faces. They scorned those around them with the faces of those who must sit in offal for the sake of entering an elect group. A communist man came up. He was also stereotypical in Tom's eyes. He wore a worker's peaked cap, had a tightly buttoned wool coat, shapeless trousers and gloves with the fingers cut off. No one could tell him anything about proletarian chic. He was also a wise speaker. He did not talk about the exploitation of the workers. He talked about the exploitation of the system that worked. There was, to Tom at least, a strong stench of failure coming from the crowd. None of them looked successful, even within their own hearts. There were educated eyes in the group, but they were eyes which had not been successfully educated since they questioned only what their ideologies rejected. They never tried to understand opposing viewpoints or take assertions they liked with a grain of salt simply because they liked them. They were not curious, thoughtful, creative eyes. They were eyes which flashed in malice when their resentments were stoked. They were irresponsible eyes which yearned to ascribe personal failure to impersonal forces. They were eyes forever searching for any reason for circumstances other than free will. They were eyes which wept in relief whenever they found an idea which undermined the necessity and reality of individual choice. They were eyes which narrowed in hatred and fearful scorn whenever they were contradicted. They were tiny, beady, piggy eyes. They were slack in dumb sympathy until challenged, then they flashed with petulant resentment. They loved the communist. They loved him, but thought him too idealistic. The communist played them easily. He was good with the phrase and had a stinging bitter humor. He talked about how the current economy needed an underclass, thus implying that the crowd were where they were because their poverty fattened someone else's pocketbook. He talked about how gradualism was impossible because there were too many forces feasting on the social body forces which would defend their interests to the death. He said that these capitalist forces operated through the Reichstag and that the first decree of a communist state would be to close parliament. We will yank these pigs back from the trough by their tails if we have to, he shouted, and then winked, his voice lowering. And who knows, perhaps there will be bacon sandwiches at the victory party. He said that the Nazis had it all wrong. The Jews were not the enemy. Capitalists were the enemy. Anyone who controlled the means of production. And if many of these people were Jews, so what? That is only because historically they were not allowed to own land. The Jews were only held up as the enemy by capitalists and their lackeys to distract people from the real enemy themselves. The man was energetic, rabid, a spellbinding speaker. He said that communism was inevitable. It had been proven, and they could either vote for it now or later. Now, and everyone's suffering was that much the less. His finale was magnificent. All drugs should be legalized. This got prolonged cheers, of course. And abortions, too. Birth control should be free. Marriage and inheritance should be outlawed. Children should be raised collectively. Jobs should be optional. Personal development was the key to communism. War should be avoided. Since communism is inevitable, why should we go to war over it? It would be like running to meet a train already coming into the station. He owned... The crowd. He smiled in great benevolence at the end of his speech. The cheering went on and on. It wound down in a fitful smatter of druggy coughing. There was a short break. Everyone smiled at each other benevolently, their spines sagging as they dug into their snacks. Then the Nazi came. He was a short man, bristling with concentrated energy. He did not mince words. You have been robbed! He screamed at the top of his lungs, and it seemed impossible to Tom that he would be able to continue. The strain must be so great. You sit there huddling over your trinkets, not knowing that you have been robbed! Tom glanced around the crowd. Everyone was still. No one chewed or took a bite eyes were wide. There was a glint of terrible excitement in the scattered, reflecting white orbs. Tom could not tell if it was because of the words themselves or the mad passion of the speaker. "'What futures do you possess?' demanded the man, his face twisted in a snarl. But the snarl was not frightening. It was oddly ennobling. It was the rage of a good doctor confronted with gruesome, unnecessary suffering." What has been given to you? A crumbling world where the privileged strip your hides for the sake of their own greed. Do you have houses? Do you have honorable professions? Do you have security? Do you believe in the future? Do you rise each morning with hope in your heart? No! I say it again, for I do not want your secrets to remain secrets. No! You awake in fear. You go through your days in fear. You struggle against hopelessness. You deaden yourselves with drugs and a little sex. The man's sneer was savage. You read mystics from the Orient and cast tarot cards in hope that somehow you can escape from a world which has become your hell. You do all these little, petty, scabby things, and yet Germany was once a world power which none dared defy. The man seemed. Overcome by a fit of rage, he pounded at the podium in a blind fury, making it shake. The audience winced, imagining his knuckles shattering. We inherited Rome, screamed the man, and we have let it all dribble away. We ruled the seas and the far lands of lesser peoples, and we have let it all be taken from us like a toy from a naughty child. We suffered under a defensive war, and then, when we were betrayed from within, and our victors humiliated us at Versailles, we retreated back to our lands, bowing and scraping and begging them to forgive us for all our former greatness. And the world has suffered for our cowardice. I will let no one off the hook for what Germany has become, for this little land we have built from a shame and guilt that is not ours. The world has suffered because Germany has suffered And Germany and you must suffer no more! Do we not have the right to be a nation? Do we, the land of poets and philosophers, not have the right to be proud of our history, our people, our inheritance, our gifts? Do we accept the view of those who cheated us and believe that we are immoral scum with no right to play a part on the world stage? Do we retreat to our communes, retreat to live in a haze of drugs and drink, forgetting all our former glories? Do we allow Germany to be utterly destroyed? The man's fists clenched white. He was in such a passion that his very frame seemed to expand. Fuck the West! Fuck France and their little logicians. Fuck the British and their petty shopkeepers. We are the keepers of a more ancient flame. We are the passions of an older age, a more human age, an age of sacrifice and glory and unswerving devotion. An age when we had more to wake up to than our own little egos, our own little desires. An age when there was a people that we were a part of An age when we cared about our race more than we cared about our own selves, when the glory of all was more than the needs of one. The man paused. With a sudden lurch, he hurled the podium to one side and advanced on the crowd. Wake up, sons and daughters of Germany. Wake your virility. You were not meant to live thus lost in a fog, the fog of your own petty selves. Wake up and join the future. Wake up and take back what was stolen from you. Wake up and join us, the Nazis, the Nazis, the Nazis. We can restore to you what was once yours. We can bring back the Germany of our forefathers. Not this little modern abortion with its democratic arguing and endless paralysis, no. A Germany which was not afraid to act, to decide, to be. A Germany that will serve you as you serve it. A Germany which will embrace every single one of you in love and devotion. A Germany which will no longer grovel before an unjust war. We did not start! A Germany which will no longer apologize for defending itself. Fuck the West! Fuck Versailles! The man's voice lowered slightly. His voice, if possible, seemed more passionate because of it. They have made it clear to us. Very, 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 very clear. They have made it clear how the world is to be run. Why do you not have homes, families, and futures? Because they have robbed you of billions of marks in reparations. They murder the fathers and then fuck and pillage the sons. It is very clear this is the way they want it. All we have to do is decide. Do we grovel and pay or stand and refuse? The man's mouth twisted further. It is your future. Decide. Strength or abasement. Pride or groveling. Integrity or humiliation. Germany or her enemies. The crowd was stunned. Tom's throat was thick with passion. The men and women gazed at the speaker in wonder as a blind man with new eyes would stare at his first sunrise. Tom turned to Klaus, whose eyes were wide, his cheeks were mottled. Noticing that Tom had turned to him, Klaus blinked, shook his head, and laughed softly. Haven't they heard this stuff before? asked Tom. The sky is good, said Klaus, still shaking his head. Best I've seen, except old Adolf. The cheer which came from the crowd was full throated, terrifyingly loud. On the stage, the short man threw his arms wide, as if embracing the sum of the sound. He had a broad grin on his face. He wiggled his fingertips, summoning more cheers. It suddenly seemed like a colossal joke. The man leapt to one side of the stage and pretended to conduct the cheers, waving his arms, seeming to pull screams out of the crowd like some manic puppeteer. He was screaming something over and over. Tom thought it was the word PRIDE. PRIDE. His body was overcharged, electric with energy. It looked almost as if he would be able to leap off the platform and fly over the surging crowd. Food was scattered as the crowd lunged forward. The man raced to the other side of the podium, still conducting, screaming the same word. Tom could tell that it was Pride! He and Klaus were taken up in the surge of bodies. Tom thought how strange it was that this crowd which had seemed so passive and resigned, seemed now so full of power. It had something to do with a lack of purpose, but he was being jarred around too much to follow the thought properly. Nazis were filling the stage. The German national anthem began to stir the air. The sky was utterly dark. The glowing lights seemed like white electric suns before an empty universe. There was a crackle and hiss, and then fireworks exploded over the crowd, which screamed and cheered and held babies aloft. Tom caught a glimpse of the communist speaker standing at the rear of the stage, staring at the Nazis in virulent hatred. Someone grabbed Tom's hand, and Klaus's face popped into view from between two pressing bodies. "'Hold on!' he screamed. "'It'll be a while!'